Hello and welcome to Advanced Practice Weekly. My name is AJ Bat and I will be your host. Today I'm joined by two guests, Greg and Michael, who are going to be doing a case-based discussion for us. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So Greg, welcome to the programme. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, thank you, AJ. So my name's Greg Wiltshire. I work as an advanced clinical practitioner uh, in emergency care in central London. And Michael? Hi, yeah, my name is Michael Trower. Uh, I'm an emergency medicine consultant with a special interest in point of care ultrasound. And it's my pleasure to work with Greg at the same hospital in central London. Fabulous. Well, guys, thank you so much for giving up your time and coming on to Advanced Practice Weekly. Today, we're going to be trying to demonstrate how a case-based discussion would take place within the emergency room with you guys talking about a case. So, Michael, you're going to be supervising and Greg is going to be delivering the case and we're going to hopefully have a nice in-depth discussion about what happened. So rather than talk about anything else for now, let's get straight into that. And Greg, would you like to present your case to us, please? Sure. Yeah, thank you. So I'm going to present this case uh, as a patient I saw overnight in the major treatment area of our emergency department. It was a 38-year-old man who had a background of sickle cell disease and end-stage renal failure due to sickle-related nephropathy. Um, he presented to the department with some chest pain, shortness of breath, and some painful leg edema. Um, his recent history was he was being worked up for an AV fistula formation, recently reviewed by the renal uh, team in their clinic, and had blood pressure that was reasonably well-controlled on several agents. Uh, this presentation was after five days of progressive lower limb swelling um, and then two days of quite painful scrotal and sacral edema. He then over the last 24 hours developed some shortness of breath and um, some central chest pain and a dry cough. Uh, the pain was gradual onset. It had now reached eight out of ten. It wasn't particularly exertional chest pain and it didn't radiate anywhere and he described it as quite typical for his sickle cell crisis pain. He had no fevers, um, no GI symptoms or sort of signs of urinary tract infection. From his renal health point of view, he, he still passed good amounts of urine and he was using fruzamide daily. Um, and he was on a host of antihypertensives, which he had taken the day before. Um, his initial assessment was at rest. He was not overtly short of breath and he was managing to complete full sentences. Uh, his respiratory rate was 18. And his sats on air were 98%. Uh, he had bibasal crackles on examination and a little bit of sternal tenderness. He was peripherally warm, uh, but he had bilateral lower limb edema and pitting to his sacrum as well. His heart rate was 70. Uh, notably, his blood pressure was 240 on 110. He had raised JVP to the angle of the jaw. And he had a slightly swollen abdomen, but it was soft and non-tender and he was apyrexic. So then his, his investigations were, uh, he had an ECG, which was sinus and non-ischemic. Um, his chest x-ray showed bilateral basal infiltrates and some shallow blunting to both costophrenic angles. Um, his venous gas was, was satisfactory in context. Um, his pH was 7.34, uh, his potassium was 3.9, and his bicarbonate was 18. And his hemoglobin was 82, which was his baseline. My um, work, working diagnosis was fluid overload, um, hypertension, and a probable sickle cell crisis uh, with, a, with a primary differential of an acute chest crisis. He had some blood tests and his, his white blood cell count was 12, but his CRP was only eight um, and his neutrophils were seven. 
His reticular sites were 277 and his LDH was 425, which are both raised. Notably, his creatinine, which had a recent recent baseline of 600, had jumped to 825 and his formal electrolytes were both were all normal. To manage him, uh, he had he had quite significant pain. So we did start him on his regular pain management uh, for his sickle cell crisis with a bit of caution because of his renal impairment in the use of opiates. Given his profound hypertension and overload, I discussed him with the, the renal registrar on call who suggested just starting on some quite aggressive diuresis. So we gave him 160 milligrams of fruzamide IV and it was almost time for his morning antihypertensive. So we added those as well. And I moved him to the resuscitation area for closer monitoring. And over the subsequent few hours, we managed to sort of diurese about 800 mils. His systolic blood pressure came down to 190. Um, and he was discussed and reviewed by the high dependency team to consider taking him for hemofiltration if he didn't respond to treatment, but eventually was admitted to care of the renal team. And I've just just looked up to see that they managed to complete his AV fistula formation, but had to put in a tunnel line to start dialysis um, already because his creatinine continued to raise to a thousand and his potassium was starting to raise. Cool. That's the case, is it, Greg? Uh, yeah, that, that's the case. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks very much. Really interesting case. Yeah, I love the way you uh, you present it really clearly with a really nice pace. I followed the, the whole thing fine, but just to clarify, so a young patient with sickle and some uh, kidney disease and his primary presentation was breathlessness, but also with chest pain and peripheral edema. I guess one way of trying to summarize a complex patient like this, where there's quite a lot going on, is to make sort of a list of issues. And then like for each issue, you can kind of have all the relevant information sort of bundled up her issue. Yeah. So for this guy, what would you say were like you know, the top three issues? Primarily, this was fluid overload. And I think something that was significant negative was he, he didn't become hypoxic. Uh, or have an oxygen requirement, um, but certainly he needed offloading. And in the context of his advanced renal disease, there was a chance that wouldn't be adequate. So having a backup plan of getting him to a high dependency area for hemofiltration was quite important. Then his, his blood pressure was yeah, significantly raised. Get, getting some control on that kind of acutely was pretty important. And I think in addition to starting on quite quite aggressive diuresis, it was also giving him his, his regular antihypertensive. And, and I think the next step on that would have been to perhaps add some kind of infusion to treat his blood pressure if he didn't have adequate response. But again, that's probably related to overload. So I think having a backup plan for high dependency and, and filtration was probably the, the go-to. Yep. Um, the, th- the third main issue was his sickle cell crisis. So he had significant pain. And the mainstay of treatment is sort of opiate analgesia. And this was made a bit complex because of his renal impairment uh, and the risk of becoming a bit toxic. So he required that medicine, but quite close observation. I think those constellation of things needed him to be moved to a the resuscitation area for closer monitoring. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, so yeah, issue one, fluid overload. Issue two was hypertension. And uh, issue three was the pain, which was predominantly in his legs. So he had, yeah, he had two, two bits of pain going on. One was sort of sternal pain, which was typical for his sickle crisis but in the context of breathlessness raised the question of a acute chest crisis yep sure and um, the other pain he had seemed quite related to the acute exacerbation of his edema so, so he had pain around the edematous areas yep. and there was no sign of infection and there was nothing to make to lead me to believe it was something else like cellulitis and we did achieve some sort of level of pain control after a couple of 
doses of his regular opiates. Yep. Okay. And was there a particular reason uh, you chose this case to discuss? Like, was there something about the case you were sort of reflecting on? Or so th- this case appealed to me to discuss with you today because it was a bit of a complex version of a, a common problem. We commonly see fluid overloaded patients in emergency. We commonly see patients with painful sickle crisis. We also commonly see patients with hypertension. But the the fact that these three problems were happening at the same time made it quite an interesting case. And it was quite challenging at the time, particularly that as it was out of hours and it required a, a bit of a multi-team input. Yeah, sure. So maybe first we can discuss a bit about the first issue, that of the fluid overload. Uh, so what did you think were the main causes of his fluid overload? So it, he had established end-stage renal failure um, and had had a step change in his creatinine level. So I think he, he, he was entering renal failure. Um, so I think the cause was his failing kidney. Yep. So he wasn't known to have any heart disease as far as we knew? He not had no uh, known heart disease, no. The reason I ask is you know, often the heart and the kidneys are uh, sort of intertwined with these problems of fluid balance. Uh, and so, yeah, as you know, if a patient has acute heart failure with high blood pressure, then bringing down the blood pressure is an important strategy to reduce the afterload and to you know, allow the heart to kind of offload. But in this case, we didn't actually think there was any heart failure playing a role, right? So it was more just the kidneys accumulating fluid and just needing to generally offload. Was that your impression? That was certainly my impression. I thought there was a fair bit of reason to believe it was the kidneys rather than heart failure, given he had no history of any uh, heart failure or heart disease, and he had quite established renal disease. Yep, sounds very reasonable. I guess just uh, the fact that he did have some crackles in the bases. Uh, I mean, I'm probably biased because I have an interest in point of ultrasound, but I guess a quick look at the heart and the lungs just to see if there was an element of heart failure may have been useful if, you know, if the time and expertise were available. Okay, so that's a bit about the fluid overload. You know, the choice of 160 milligrams, is that, was that based on any logic? Was that like twice his normal dose? or This was based on the, uh, the wise advice of uh, the renal physician and in, in conversation with the high dependency team. I think at, at the time we started to treat him, we still weren't sure what his level of care requirement would be. And so it was a bit of, a, bit of an MDT with the high dependency team and the renal team who, who both agreed that he, he needed quite a high dose and both agreed that that would be a good starting point with a view to to make a plan based on the impact of that treatment after sort of a couple of hours yep yeah sounds very reasonable okay uh, and then yeah the second issue of the high blood pressure uh, obviously yeah the number was very high yeah, do you have a way of kind of categorizing hypertension like into kind of two main categories from an emergency perspective yeah so the figure i have in my head is sort of a systolic greater than 190 in terms of considering malignant hypertension and assessing for evidence of end organ dysfunction. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I think in, in an emergency context, this is the most significant number I have in my head Yeah, for raised pressure. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think uh, there's, there's quite a lot of variation in practice with this kind of this issue of raised blood pressure with renal impairment. Uh, I mean, certainly some of my colleagues would you know, admit patients with very high blood pressures over 200 if they had worsening renal uh, renal function. Another approach is just to go more based on the 
clinical picture. So whether there is end organ damage, as you say. So I guess things like yeah, other than other than the kidney, what are some other sort of end organs that we look at? Uh, yeah. So looking at um, dysfunction with the lungs, so pulmonary edema. Um, commonly, apart from renal, it would be um, sort of fundoscopy um, to, look, to look for changes. Yep. Um, and in, in the context of sort of a, a headache, especially, might indicate sort of more aggressive management of that blood pressure or, or um, imaging of the brain. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, the way I like to think of it is, yeah, as you say, acute pulmonary edema, so left ventricular failure with high blood pressure, that's obviously a reason for admission. Yeah, in terms of the head, I guess a hypertensive encephalopathy, if someone is confused with very high blood pressure and no other clear cause for their confusion, that would be another reason to potentially admit someone and even start them on uh, an intravenous antihypertensive infusion. The aorta is another thing to think about. So if someone has you know, central chest, back, abdominal pain with very high blood pressure, think about whether there could be an, an aortic emergency, like a dissection. Yeah, for the other stuff, like symptomatic hypertension, like you know, headache, dizziness, worsening renal function. I think they're probably softer uh, indications for admission. And I guess those situations are more sort of case by case basis. Definitely, I have had some patients who've come in with symptomatic hypertension, but no clear end organ dysfunction, and their blood pressure may be you know, over 200. Uh, but if they're sort of independent, and they're, they're managing well, potentially, they can still uh, be discharged, uh, especially if there's some kind of a robust system to follow them up like where we work we have a, a beautiful clinic where people can come back you know the next day for a review uh, so having some of those services in place does sort of allow you to discharge greater proportion of those kind of borderline blood pressure cases cool so that was a bit about blood pressure and then yeah the third issue of the pain should we focus on the leg pain actually first so you mentioned he had leg pain around where the edema was but were there any other sort of differentials you thought about in terms of what was causing that pain other than just pressure from the edema yeah i think primarily differentials were could it be part of a, a crisis pain or infection it was um it was more sort of around the waist where he'd newly developed edema and so i did it i did examine for signs of infection but it was not not erythematous and it was just just pitting edema really it was not the sort of pain that he typically gets with crisis so it could, it could have been crisis but i should, i attributed it more to the edema yep. and his, his tummy was soft and non-tender so i don't think it was an abdominal cause and he didn't have urinary symptoms and and we did we did do a urine test and there was no evidence of infection yep so yeah those are the alternatives i explored it's hard without having seen him but edema doesn't normally cause a lot of pain right so was it was it because it was really tense or? Uh, yeah, quite tense edema around, the, around his perineum. Yep. Okay. And in general with sickle patients, are there any other differentials that you kind of specifically think about in terms of limb pain? Like maybe not so relevant to this mm. specific chat, but just in general in sickle cell disease? Thromboembolism, definitely DVT. Yep. A more rare but important one to consider would be like uh, bone infections. They tend sickle patients uh, because of the sort of Functional hyposplenism are at risk of things like uh, osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. It doesn't sound like it was that in this case because his symptoms were bilateral and he didn't have fever. But uh, another thing just to think about with sickle limb pain. Any other questions you had from the case? Uh, no, that was it. I think we sort of covered in terms of the fluid overload. There's that option to explore sort of cardiogenic causes considering an echo. Yep. And on the sort of differentiation of sort of hypertension crisis, 
you also mentioned just thinking about the aorta yep. as a sort of possible dissection in the context of profound hypertension and pain. Yep. I did consider I didn't consider the pain to be in suggestive of this definitely worth a thought and just thinking the pain seemed quite sort of superficial to the legs i was thinking more about sort of skin infections but you've just suggested to think a little bit about less typical infections like osteomyelitis or, or septic arthritis uh, which is a good point yeah yeah that's a nice summary i guess one other concept that comes to mind is the idea of pain that's out of proportion to examination findings you can use an acronym poop p-o-o-p pain out of proportion and there are certain sort of classic conditions that cause more pain than you would expect from the examination findings. Are you familiar with that concept? Are you aware of any conditions that can cause that? I'm not not familiar with poop, to be honest with you, um, but definitely what in the context of this sort of perineal pain, definitely any sort of necrotizing infection. So, mm. yeah, so thinking about corneas, yeah, I kept coming back to Ludwig. So in the context of this this type of pain, out of proportionate pain might make me think of a corneas gangrene. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about what you're, what the other yep. you know, that's, highlights are in poop. Yeah, necrotizing infections, yeah, such as fourniers or just like necrotizing fasciitis of the leg. But obviously there would be, there'd be other signs to go with it. And then there are some other causes of poop other than laxatives, which would include things like uh, ischemic bowel is a, is a classic one. So... And older people who present with quite severe abdominal pain but don't have a lot of abdominal tenderness be thinking, could this be ischemic gut? Other conditions could include things like compartment syndrome. If there'd been a history of trauma, often lower limb fractures can cause compartment syndrome where you can have very severe pain but not a lot of findings. So yeah, I think in this case, given his, he had quite a lot of pain in his legs and uh, lower sort of body, but not that much to find other than the edema, yeah, I would just think about you know could there be some other underlying cause for the pain but yeah in this case it sounds like there wasn't actually yeah i don't i don't suspect there was a septic arthritis but yeah thank you for highlighting those things so um thank you very much michael i think to summarize what i understand your feedback to be i think we we talked a little bit about the problem one of the fluid overload and i would definitely think about echo if there was any reason to suspect this might be cardiogenic um, I'll have a little review of my understanding of um, sort of accelerated or malignant hypertension and maybe more specific indications for further investigation. I'll definitely keep aorta in the forefront of my mind. Um, and that sort of leg and sort of perineal pain, I'll think a bit more broadly about infection type. Um, and thank you for giving me the, the, the guidance on the, the, the poop acronym. Which... In terms of the poop, I just happened to, to pick out some of the causes that kind of sprung to mind as the classic causes of pain out of proportion. There, there isn't really any other uh, sort of anything to unify them other than the fact they all are known to cause this kind of pain that's out of proportion to examination findings. There, there's other causes as well, things like you know, orbital cellulitis is another one. Uh, so there's no other sort of deep secret link between them. Just a couple of other points. So yeah, in terms of the aorta, as you may have heard of, there's this campaign, Think Aorta, because it's sort of known that it's a very difficult diagnosis because it can present with all different symptoms, occasionally can present without any pain at all. I like to think of this concept of chest pain plus uh, when I'm thinking about, could this be an acute aortic dissection? So if you have chest pain plus a collapse, a syncope, that should make you think about a dissection. Or if you have chest pain plus 
uh, neurology or stroke-like symptoms. That should also make you think about a dissection. Uh, and then thirdly, chest pain plus very high blood pressure would be another potential cause of or potential sort of red flag for an acute aortic emergency. So in terms of ongoing learning, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, Arkham Learning is fantastic, as you know, and there are modules on all of these topics. So for things like accelerated or malignant hypertension, as we've talked about, also for acute aortic dissection, also for sickle cell in general. So yeah, definitely have a look at them. Uh, in terms of developing ultrasound skills, yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, different options for this. Uh, because I know you, I know you're already sort of working on your logbook, but for everyone else out there, I think, yeah, ultrasound is just a uh, absolutely mandatory skill for a, for a good emergency practitioner. Uh, and basically the sicker the patient is, the more useful point of cut ultrasound becomes. So any patient in resus with, with chest pain, shortness of breath, shock, you know, these patients benefit greatly from ultrasound. Uh, in this case, it may not have changed management much, but you know, if you had done a scan and found that actually the heart wasn't pumping very well at all, this could have definitely changed our management. Uh, so yeah, I'd just encourage you to keep working on those skills as well. Thanks very much for the case, Greg. Thank you very much. Thanks for your feedback. Because Michael, I thought it was interesting how you sort of picked out the three sort of top topics of the case and asked Greg to sort of elaborate on those a little bit more. Was there a reason that you did that? Were you thinking at what are the highlights of this? What do I, are these the most important things? Is, are you asking him that so though, so you're trying to work out that he understands what are the three biggest problems or are you wanting to do that just from a summary point of view? Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, well, I, I often encourage people to try and uh, write down a list of issues from kind of most important to least important for any kind of complex case because yeah, usually there are multiple issues and it just helps the, the treating clinician kind of structure things in their own head. But also it kind of uh, gives a teaching session structure as well. Uh, so yeah, because this was a quite complicated case with quite a lot going on. I thought that was a reasonable approach just for general, like in general, seeing patients, I would encourage that. Uh, and then I guess, you know, yeah, in a 20 minute session like this, I guess you can only really cover a few specific aspects you can't go into too much detail. So I think one of the main roles as a, as a supervisor is just to get people thinking broadly, uh, as Greg already does. But, uh, often when like junior doctors present to me, I'll, they'll sort of present a, a list of symptoms. So then I'll often have to prompt. So what's your differential? What's your top three differential diagnoses? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really good. It's like you're, you're, you're obviously trying to allow the practitioner to explore the differentials themselves and, and hopefully let them tell you what they think rather than you telling them what you think <laughs> no that's great and greg from your side you're obviously already used to doing your case-based discussions in this way is this the, the normal format for you is this how you would do them with most of your other supervisors as well yeah more or less it follows the same format i think working in the context we do to consultant-led service and you know presenting cases in a slightly more summarized version of this is our day-to-day -day business and I think when when a case is of learning value pulling it out into a little bit more detail isn't much of a stretch from what we do normally just to really find those hone in on those more specific learning needs so that I can do in my 
in my learning, I can just be a bit more targeted uh, to make it more effective. Thank you very much, Greg and Michael, for joining us on this week's Advanced Practice Weekly. It's been fantastic hearing you guys go through your case-based discussion and we look forward to having you back on the programme for more. Take care, everybody, and thank you.